Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hi, and welcome to episode six of Nevermind the Ballots. Unfortunately, it's our last episode of the series, Sob. But don't worry, because we'll be back again in the autumn. So this week, we've got Cabinet Member for Housing, Paul Smith, returning to the podcasting chair, and Conservative Councillor for Brislington East, Tony Carey. We're talking consultations on rough sleepers and van dwellers, clean air zones, and this week's fiery cabinet meeting. Remember, you can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcasting provider. You can also follow us at Ballots Podcast on Twitter. So without further ado, let's crack on. So Paul and Tony, thank you very much for joining us here today. Now I'm going to kick off with Paul. And Paul, you're going to be talking about two consultations which were launched last Friday. So the first one is to do with van dwellers and the second is to do with rough sleepers. So we're going to do them one by one because they are separate consultations. So van dwellers first. You were saying last week that there isn't any accurate way to measure the numbers at this time, but we're thinking that there's around 200 in the city. The authority has no powers to evict somebody who's living in a fully MOT'd and taxed vehicle, but you want to encourage people to move into more traditional forms of housing like flats or houses. And at one point we had up to around 50 dwellers in Greenbank. And that's where this kind of consultation came from. Is that correct? Not entirely. I mean, the the consultation, we've been working on it for several months. So before the problem blew up in Greenbank, because mm-hmm. we were already getting issues from uh, the eastern area, St. Werbergs uh, and other parts of the city. So there's something that we wanted to take quite a lot of time on to get it to get it right and to, to work out exactly what it was we were trying to achieve. There's always a danger, you know, somebody comes to the council, complains about van dwellers, and then we have some sort of knee-jerk reaction. So so what is the issue with people living in vans if, if you know, it's fully taxed, MOT'd and licensed? Well, firstly, most people living in vans don't want to be living in vans. They're living in vans because they can't afford to rent or buy anywhere within the city. So in some respects, the reason of bringing the two consultations out together is because they're facets of the of the same housing crisis, which is not caused by the people living in vans. It's not caused by the people living in streets. Uh, in fact, you know, we've seen these things escalate since the welfare reforms were brought in in 2012 by the coalition government. We've had... Uh, 19 different cuts to housing benefit since then. We've also had the introduction of the sanctions regime, which takes benefits off people. Um, There's a lot of academic research now that shows that that doesn't actually work in encouraging people into work. But what it does do is drive some people into destitution. So we've got a systemic problem in our housing market within Bristol, which means that many people are being displaced from the housing market altogether. So blaming those people for that 
would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. Uh, it's not their fault. There are a small number of people who choose to live in vans, but the vast majority just want a flat or a house, but they can't access that. Our objective is not to punish people because of the circumstances they find themselves in as no fault of their own. But we also have a duty of care to residents in an area. We have a duty of care to, to people who use the roads and the streets. So if people are living in vans, they're not causing any problems to other people. They're not causing any, any antisocial behaviour. There's not any criminal activity. Then they're perfectly free to stay parked on the streets living in those vehicles. It's not necessarily good for the health. Certainly long term, it's not good for the health. But if that's what they're doing and they're they're respecting the community that they live within, then that's fine. In the street I live in, we have people living in vans every now and again. Doesn't It's not causing us a problem. But where there are instances of antisocial behaviour, late night, very loud noise, people defecating in the streets, drug... Uh, litter in the streets, people drug dealing from vans, prostitution, all of these other things, then action has to be taken. Now, some of that action is obviously the responsibility of the police and they will take action about criminality. We have to deal with issues of antisocial behaviour uh, and gather evidence. So what, we, what we've said in this consultation or what we're asking in this consultation is whether people would accept that where there are severe antisocial behaviour, that we get an injunction to move those vehicles on. That gives them a chance to move somewhere else and try and be settled. If they move on somewhere else and we get the same behaviour again, then we will take the same action again. If they're not causing a problem, then we leave them be. So at Green Bank, I know that there was at one point up to 50 people living out of vans, or 50 vans with more people in it. And part of the kind of temporary solution by the council was to open up a temporary site in Avonmouth where some people chose to take their vans to and, and pay rent and have some uh, facilities there. But that site, I understand, is is due to be sold by the council and there aren't any plans to have a, a future site set aside for people who perhaps want to live in vans. Why, why is that? We offered Avonmouth just because it was a lot of a lot of vans all moving at the same time. We know some just move around the corner, but there probably weren't enough places for 50 vehicles just around the corner. So in this instance, we said, OK, for a temporary period, you, you can move to the, the transit site in Avonmouth and that, you know, we can provide toilet facilities. But no way is that a long term answer to anything, really. It was just an offer to help deal with that particular instance in terms of provide you know the answer to everything is to provide sites for x y or z actually there's only so much land within the city and um you know i've i've made you know quite a lot of progress uh with with the council with our partners with, with the officers of actually getting the land that is available to actually be built on so you know i i would on the drive in that I take into Bristol in the morning, I pass a site on Brook Lane and 120 homes being built. Then I come through uh, Whitehall and the old White Hart pub, 14 affordable rented homes being built by Curo, where the pub and the pub car park was. Then I come through Redcliffe and 300 homes being built uh, as part of the Redcliffe Quarter development. All across the city, there are new housing developments going up. We want that land 
for housing. We don't want that land for vehicles. Now, there, there is lots of land. It's called the road. A lot of the, of the cities is, is the road. There are lots of places on roadsides where people can park. So vehicle dwellers can go to those to those locations. There's already been suggestions of schemes that work in some other places, part of the consultation that work in other uh, local authorities, you know, about temporary parking in the evenings in in industrial areas and the like. We're prepared to look at solutions people have got, but what we're not prepared to do is to take sites which we can build permanent housing that we can deal with the underlying problem to create a temporary solution which stops us creating the long-term solution. Mm. So we have got one group on a site, which I'm not going to say where it is, which is where we are building housing, which until we start building housing, there are a group of van dwellers actually living on on that site, looking after it a little bit. They're, they've got water, they've paid for toilets, we're dealing with the waste. And so we might look in some instances at where we are developing of using the site temporarily but it always has to be understood that it's only a temporary use. And so to move on to the second strand of the consultation, which is itself a separate consultation, that's to look at rough sleeping in Bristol. So in 2012, nine people were recorded during the rough sleeping count, which is essentially where on one set night, I think it's in November, isn't it? You go out and you will count the number of of people who were sleeping rough. And this increased to 86 last time, In addition, the council helped 773 people sleeping rough last year and spends around £16 a year on on homeless provision and rough sleeping. In Cabinet, you said that the council had received a £500,000 grant to provide an additional 42 spaces and open a 24-hour homelessness provision shelter. So it seems like the city is making lots of progress and making lots of effort and putting lots of money into it. Why, Why the need for this consultation? Well, because what we're what we're proposing is a change of policy, and changes of policy require legally require um, a consultation. What we had is we had different different approaches being taken on different sites, different bits of council land. So what was being done on parks was different to what was being done by highways. Was different to what was being done by housing. So what we've tried to do is bring it together into one consistent policy and approach which again is risk based that we will when there are encampments and an encampment can be one person again there'll be an issue are they causing antisocial behavior and nuisance to people um if they're not we'll try and uh provide we'll provide them with support through outreach try and find get them in doors because sleeping on the streets is dangerous the life expectancy of people on the streets is less than 50 um, so we do want to bring people in. We do want to get them assessed. We do want to make sure that they're getting the proper support that's available, whether that's to do with drug and alcohol, whether that's due to mental health, whether it's physical health, whole range. We want to make sure people are getting the support that that they should be getting. It's very difficult for us to do that when they're sleeping on the streets. So obviously we're trying to bring people uh, off the streets. In terms of this consultation, it's about having a consistent approach to doing that across whichever bit of the public land the people happen to have landed in. So it's based pretty much on this, the way in which parks have been doing it for years. And if there's antisocial behaviour, we will act very quickly to to move the encampment. Um, if there's no problems, then we'll monitor it and try and negotiate people indoors. 
the big change is, is what we're offering, and this was never offered before, um, is that for any of those encampments that we seek to move, we will offer the people in that encampment a minimum of seven days indoors uh, to allow us to do the assessments. Um, so that might be in the contact centre or it might be in one of the one of the other hostels or provision or in the new facility that we're that we're setting up at the moment to do that assessment and hopefully get them into what we call the homelessness pathways which are routes hopefully from the street into long-term sustainable housing uh, most of it being social housing provided by the council or by housing associations but 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 looking at what their support needs are and getting the right level of support so there are 800 supported hostel places in Bristol. Again, some for people with mental health problems, some for women escaping domestic violence, some for people with drug and alcohol problems, some that are just for young, vulnerable people. So there are different facilities for people with different needs. So we would try and match them to the right need. If they don't need any support, we might try and get them straight away into a flat. So they don't have to go through the pathway. People start in the level of the pathway where they where they need to be. And so we want to use that seven days to do that assessment and to get them to get them into somewhere. Obviously, we can't force people in, indoors if they just choose to move to another location. Then there's there's very little we can we can do about that. But it's an offer. We want we want to bring people off the streets. We want to get people back into mainstream housing. Rough sleeping isn't good for people. It's a danger to their health. Unfortunately, rough sleeping often leads to, can be caused by a mental health breakdown, but can also lead to a mental health breakdown. It can be caused by drug and alcohol problems, but can also lead to drug and alcohol problems. And I guess most people, if they were sleeping on the streets for any length of time, would soon turn to drugs or alcohol to just numb the impact of that. Uh, But what that means often is people don't make rational choices, so that when we talk to them about coming off the streets, they often don't want to do that because they're not necessarily in a place to make those choices. So that's why we do a lot to try and encourage encourage people in. Some people will say, you know, we're, you know, and I've, I, I mentioned this yesterday at the cabinet meeting, that people had said, oh, the council is just trying to sweep people off the streets. Um, well, yes, we are, but we're not trying to sweep them off the streets in a sort of get keep Britain tidy approach. We're trying to get them off the streets back into the housing system so that they can hopefully get their lives back on track and that they can live somewhere which is safe, secure, healthy. So that that's what that's what we're trying to do and we're u- using the fact that we've we've got some funding to create this new hostel which Tony has been actually supportive of as the local ward councillor where where mm-hmm. it is as adding about 50% to the to the night shelter provision in Bristol to give us more capacity to do that. Mm. Now, Tony, if I can come to you, what, what's your take on these two consultations? The first consultation, the um, van dwellers, everything Paul has said, it, 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 common sense and all, yeah, all the points he makes, they're all very valid. And I think really we have to be supportive of him and the policies that are, are are being proposed, and also with the the rough sleeping policy, uh, the consultation he mentioned the new facility that's going to be developed in Brisington East. In Anne's, yeah. And I think that's absolutely splendid because we have a little history of 
I'm going to say one of some of life's unfortunates ending up in our neck of the woods. We're that far out the city centre. Often there's not people don't come to us because uh, it, it often there's not folk want to be in the city centre where they can perhaps make use of what facilities there are. There aren't that many in Brisington. I'm going to take away the library. There'll be none. But that's digressing. Rough sleeping. Uh, no one chooses to be homeless ever. That's not an option in, in real life. To be a rough sleeper is the bottom end of being homeless. Uh, I had a job one time where I was actually paid good money to rough sleep and, and do a job. Oh, man, it's the pits, no matter what you're being paid. Why were you paid to rough sleep? I was on a commander unit in Europe. Ah, I see. So we would go for days and days in a ditch and things like that. Um, why on earth anyone would choose to live rough is beyond me. I mean, obviously, Tony, I know you're not answerable for the entire Conservative Party oh, or I Parliament. I am. But Paul would say so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, one of the arguments which is often kind of put forward is actually central government needs to step in more and provide more funding. This housing crisis has been caused by, you know, years of Well, just let's lack go back to dear um, Margaret Thatcher and the mm-hmm. right to, to buy... I think any common sense conservative should have knocked on a door and said, excuse me, Prime Minister, that's not a good policy. To buy at a, a major discount, OK, discount it to somehow or other, but it was a significant discount, up to a third off the value of a house. Well, that's an immense sum of money when you consider the huge number of buildings that were sold off. And I was very much against that at the time. I said so at the time probably lost a lot of Conservative friends about it. My thoughts at the moment are housing has to be developed as quickly as it possibly can. I understand now the problem with housing is that we we don't have enough qualified bricklayers. Well, that's down to the government again. Let's get some serious training developed and get young men, instead of trying to send... And women. I beg your pardon, everybody out there, and get some people qualified, get the buildings constructed as quickly as is practical. Now, in Brisington, I mentioned earlier on in the foyer when we were chatting that we have a patch of land we know is going to be developed. The uncertainty of it being developed is causing community stress. And I would like to see some plan coming forward. We know what we're looking at then. We've got jobs, you know, with the sill money that would come out of it. We've got jobs we want to do in our community and make good use of that money, parkland and, and play facilities uh, in, in the Broomhill area. We, we're just waiting for someone to come on. But someone somewhere in a big high, high ivory tower, probably in London, is sitting on the value of that land, watching it go up all mm. the while. And I would like to see that land released for development. I'd like to see you know the plans put forward. And, and then the community can start discussing what we can do with this property, with these properties, I know that there are many, probably tens of people wanting to live in Brisington, to be near their own families. There aren't the properties. So I would very much like to see um, housing uh, um, developed. But I've, just, I've got away from the rough No, pod. no, no, that's fine. I mean, Paul, a couple of months ago, I think you brought to Cabinet a proposition to kind of levy sanctions against companies which were land banking. Well, what we're, what we're looking at is actually using compulsory purchase powers to try and get hold of land. We have got a real, we've got, I know, I know what Tony's talking about, it's Brisbane Meadows, I Absolutely, think. Absolutely, yeah. 
And it's one of those, we own 15% of the mm-hmm. site, somebody else owns the other 85%. And we're trying to get all of that land into into one ownership so that we can then go start talking realistically to the community about what will happen there. Um, and there are lots of sites around Bristol. Again, we've been lobbying government. I Actually, Conservative councils are lobbying government the same because we all have to be able to demonstrate we've got a five-year land supply, every local mm. authority in the country. And people taking land out of the system because they're land banking or speculating is, is a real problem. Mm. I'm, I mean, I was really pleased actually to see that the in in the post, I think this morning, that the, the Brook Road site's coming forward in St Paul's. And also um, we should soon have also the Dove Lane Street site coming forward. I know that's out to tender uh, at the moment. So those are two sites that have been empty for a very long time coming forward. But... You know, one of the sites near where I live, uh, Good Neston Road in, in Fish Ponds, there's somebody who lives in the Channel Islands who's just sitting on it. It's mm. got permission for over 120 homes. We really need to be able to bring those sites forward. Mm. And we are talking to Homes England, which is a, a government agency, about how we can use their money to buy up some of these sites uh, and then get them get them built out. So to steer us kind of back to rough sleeping and van dwellers, is housing the main issue which needs to be tackled in respects of those two issues? Or are there other threads to that string which need to be well, looked I think, at I think, I think, as I said at the beginning, actually the biggest issue is welfare and social security and and particularly the benefit sanctions regime, which which takes away uh, people's money. But there are, there are lots... There's obviously the general issue of supply of, of affordable housing. Last year, we did 1,800 lettings of uh, social housing within the city. The year before, it was 2,100. If you go back three or four years ago, it was 2,500. If you go back 10 years, it would have been 3,000. The turnover in the social housing stock, in the existing stock, without even talking about the new things that have been built, has slowed down because there aren't other options for people to move on. Um, we're being told that 4,000 people a year move from London into Bristol. They bring quite a lot of equity with them, which means that they can price out local people in terms of the house purchase market. We're seeing more and more housing being converted to student housing, which is very often displacing uh, private rented to people on lower incomes. So, we, you know, there are a large number of factors you know, more and more people are falling falling through the cracks. I mean, one of the things that we're expanding through the, the little bit of funding that we've got recently is the housing first model, uh, where we take people with complex needs, we, we do an assessment of all the support that they need, get them into a property and make sure that all that support is around them. But we could really do with a better funded mental health service generally, because you know, the level of your need before you get a service from the mental health trust seems to get higher and higher. And actually the same with our social care as well. So there are huge pressures in lots of different parts of the system, which all contribute to the problem. But the two biggest are we need, we need to build more housing in general, social housing specifically, and we need to review a lot of these welfare reforms, which have had probably unintended consequences of forcing people onto the streets. I was very worried. I I remember listening to a Radio 4 interview with Ian Duncan Smith, which was about the benefit cap. 
he was saying that he thought it was helping more people into work. The Radio 4 interviewer said, well, there's this evidence, you know, that's, that the research has been done says that isn't what's happening. And he said, well, I don't care what the evidence says. I believe it's right. And I think that we that we do have to, I mean, as politicians, we all have our ideologies and our and our beliefs and our prejudices, which which affect our policy. But we mustn't ignore the evidence. We have to have much more of an evidence-based approach. Um, and in terms of housing, I mean, this year I went to the, the Conference of Housing Academics, the Housing Studies Association Conference, to actually listen to academics talking about the outcomes of their research. I think I'm the only politician that ever goes to that unless they're invited to speak and they just go for their speaking session and and disappear. And what does that say about you? (laughs) It says I'm a geek. I'm a housing geek. I admit it. Um, But for me, however strongly we hold our beliefs and and our political views and our ideologies, we must look at the evidence. We can't ignore the evidence. Yeah. Yeah, you're quite right. And I mean, everything that Paul said there is, you know, again, spot on. He's been around a long time. and um, <laughs> I'm 107. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it seems like it anyway. <laughs> to actually sort of um, be specific about housing, it's like fighting a forest fire. It doesn't matter how much water you put on. Yes, you will, you will damp down some things, but there will always be elements of fire. Okay, our elements of fire are our rough sleepers, let's say. We're going to put a lot of money time, energy into developing houses, which would be effectively the water. But my my thoughts are, maybe these aren't conservative thoughts, maybe these are personal thoughts, that if we can get all those people who are house sharing into individual properties of their own, then these the, the smaller dwellings perhaps might then become options for properly homeless people or rough sleepers. You, you meet folks out on the street every day and personal experience you you, you can become homeless overnight mm. one paycheck away isn't it mm. well i i can tell you a story now that there were seven of us guys living in a house in i won't mention the fact it was weymouth um <laughs> all young men doing what men do at that stage of their lives and the landlord came down and said the builders are coming in next week i want you all out by sunday night whatever it was. We had no real contract with him. It was We were doing him a favour by sort of keeping the place cleanish and tidy and safe. And so Sunday night, there were seven of us then momentarily homeless. Now, the, most of us had good paying jobs and we were able to go and find another dig somewhere, except for one guy. Uh, ended up spending the whole of that summer in a beach hut on Portland Bill. And it wasn't until the Beach Hut owner came along for his two weeks holiday. He said he realised it was somebody dossing <laughs> in his thing. But that's how quickly you can be homeless. It wasn't even a paycheck away. It was it was a few days, a day or two. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. oh, crikey, you know, this has gone totally pear-shaped. Yes, in today's society where rents are so much higher, out of proportion with what people earn, you know, you, 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 you can understand how easily the problem develops how easy the problem multiplies and uh well we we get a big peak after christmas yeah because most people are one divorce away from uh from becoming homeless rather you know it's you know relationship breakdowns is one of the big causes of of 
people having the because homelessness is a crisis for people if the if the system isn't there to pick up people when they're in crisis then that's when the crisis becomes worse and worse and actually that period we you know we know the two weeks after new year will be when we'll get the most people coming to our customer service point because the relationships broke down somebody's been kicked out uh, of of their home Mm. they're they're then like living in their car or or wherever, and then they're coming to mm. us to be housed. On a different point that, that Tony raised, which I think is a really, really important point, one of the things we're trying to do is create a whole range of useful moves. So in a number of areas, what you know, particularly areas that were built in the in the fifties, a lot of the, the council housing in the fifties or the thirties, in those estates, not just in the council housing, but in the owned property, you've got older people who are in a three bedroom property who would love to move to a smaller property, but it's got to be something that they want to mm. move to. You know, it's got to be a property that's attractive to them. So part of what we're trying to do in the new developments is to ensure that there is accommodation in their own community, because people also don't want to break up their networks. We don't want to create loneliness through this, that we can move people within their own community to a more appropriate property that they want to move to. That then frees up a three-bedroom house. That might allow somebody in a two-bedroom flat in a tower block with a family to move into that house. Absolutely. Which then allows somebody else to move into that property. So that you get a knock-on effect of moves which which are all all helpful for people. You know, which which building one property might solve four four households housing problem. And that's that's what we're trying to build into the new, you know, we're trying to do it intelligently. Mm. So that means we're not necessarily going to build lots of three bedroom houses because actually, particularly in the outskirts of the city, there are already lots of three bedroom houses and we need to mix it up a bit more. Well, with uh, Brisbane Meadows, for example, mm. we're, we're guesstimating 300 dwellings. Yeah. If 100 of those dwellings were suitable for elderly people, they would have to mm. be of a quality because often there's not People of my age and older um, have been able perhaps to string together um, a, a, a property which is very, very pleasurable to live in. If we can get people like me out of three bedroomed houses and into mm. a two bedroomed apartment, uh, which is. I thought uh, we could get you back into a ditch, actually. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. But um, we're building, I mean, we're building five council house bungalows in your ward at the you moment are. aren't we they'll you be are. they'll be they'll be finished uh, fairly soon yeah. and you know there aren't many bungalows in bristol i'm sure that you know when it comes up on home choice we'll have a huge number of people after those yeah mm. well i that, the, the point i tried to make earlier is i'm very much against the right to buy i understand why people want to own their own properties it was a, it's a conservative dream but it doesn't help folks in Paul's position who are trying to house however many mm. homeless people and rough sleepers as well. It doesn't help at all yeah. because how many of those properties were sold off in the 70s, 80s and what have you are now... Over 20,000 mm. in Bristol we sold it, off it, and some yeah. of them are now private rented. Private, mm. pri- exactly, yeah, privately mm. rented, which is totally not what was it was designed to do. The mm. concept was for people to buy a property to get onto the property ladder, not to become another landlord. landlord. Yeah. Well, Tony, I'm going to stick with you now. We're moving on to topic number two, which is clean air zones. So the council, along with 45, 44 sorry, other local authorities in England, 
has been prompted to make its own clean air zone plan after the government lost a court case with an organisation called Client Earth. Mm. So in terms of the Bristol clean air zone, there are a couple of things which the council has to decide. So first of all, it's the scale of this zone. So there's a two zones kind of up for up for offer. The first is a very kind of small one, which is just the city centre. And the second is a slightly extended one, which would take in Montpellier, Cottom, Bedminster, St. Phillips and part of Easton. So that's the first decision, the scale of it. The second is to what extent this clean air zone goes to. I mean, there's one option is not to charge anyone and to try and get people to change their habits by increasing cycling and walking routes. The second is to charge lorries and and all vehicles apart from cars. And then the third is to charge all vehicles, a blanket kind of charging, which would include cars. However, there would also be some cars which would be exempt from that. So diesel registered cars after 2014 and petrol cars registered after 2006 and all electric vehicles. So that's kind of where we are at the moment. That's much like other cities um, in UK and certainly in Europe. Mm. Um, so, Tony, tell, explain to our listeners your kind of background, your involvement in this. Well, for a very short period of time, I was a chair of the task and finishing group of the air quality group at Bristol, but that is in the formative period. Eventually, the decision was to take it back into the Labour group. And um, as they have easier access to the officers anyway, it probably is the obvious option to do. I was a bit frustrated because it is the one topic I feel I have, if not knowledge, then certainly the ability to acquire the knowledge swiftly. And um, I mean, in terms of your, your, obviously you're a conservative, that kind of environmental stream doesn't always naturally, it's not a natural bedfellow with the Tory well, no, party. No, it isn't because um, otherwise a government wouldn't be losing cases against Client Earth. <laughs> I mean, Client Earth is a very powerful organisation. And what I found very interesting re- reading recently that Client Earth and the Chinese government are working hand in glove to improve the in, the, the atmosphere in uh, Chinese cities. And I'm thinking, well, this is the same guy who's taking European cities to court and winning. So perhaps the government's looking at it from the wrong side. The government is being forced to take action, where in actual fact, perhaps it should be looking at Client Earth and saying, right, hands up, we've got it wrong. What can we do? What should we be doing? Consultations are great, but there's six weeks you're wasting. You know, Client Earth could probably walk in and say, there's a bit of paper there, and it tells you everything that those cities that I've been working with have done to improve their environment. Quickly looking at uh, the uh, Michael Gove's statement from May this year, we will legislate to ensure that only the cleanest domestic fuels will be available for sale. Well, that's a load of bunkum, to be quite honest, because if you've got a wood-burning stove you're going to go out to the local building site and find up any uh, any old smashed up pallets and you're going to get those bits of wood and you'll get them back to your house and you're going to use those. And there is no way that wood-burning stoves are environmentally friendly. Barbecues. you only got to watch um, Clean Air Cycling guy who comes in and publishes on, on Twitter every day. Sunday afternoons, as he's going out through the suburbs, which should be clean and green... Or actually blobs of orange and even red, where people are having barbecues and churning out huge degrees of particulate in their immediate vicinity. 
So I think we've got to look. Um, sorry, go on. You're Bringing say. it back to clean air zones and, in particular, kind of the road aspect to it. What would you like to see in Bristol? What do you think is appropriate for Bristol? Well, we only have the one major public transport supplier. In one way, that's bad because there's no competition on price. In another way, it's good because it means that that supplier, uh, that operator, is able to develop. The, uh, in conjunction with the, the, uh, our, you know, the council, it can develop vehicles, it can develop strategies that keep pollution to the minimum. We're talking about buses and improving their yeah, engine yeah. quality. But in, in, in terms of what the council should be looking at, should it be looking at charging all vehicles, including cars, just the vans and lorries, or looking at a non-charging method? What, what would be your preferred option? My personal, I, I'm being a conservative in the group, I'd like to think that we didn't have to charge at all. But realistically, and again, I'm going to put myself in, in, in the bad books. Dear Boris, when he was mayor of London, for two complete terms, oversaw the, the charging community, uh, congestion charging in London. And I'm thinking, well, how can it not be po- conservative policy? You had a period of eight years there where you could have done something about it. But obviously you chose to con- continue with it. In fact, the only thing that dear Boris did was actually put the price up because um, we were talking earlier that some people have discovered that they've got enough spare cash that they can afford to take their vehicles into London. It doesn't worry. They pass the cost on to their employer. They pass the cost on to the customer or they can afford to absorb it themselves. So the vehicle count in London is rising again as more and more people find they have this disposable income, let's say. I would like to think that we don't have to uh, charge very much at all. I would like to see, for example, off-street unload, uh, on-street unloading happening before, let's say, 8 a.m., after 6 p.m. It happens in Brisbane. You don't get on-street unloading, so you, vehicles then flow through. I'd like to see better enforcement of tra- road traffic rules where box junctions are kept clear. You come in from Brisington on the A4 or A37, you get to three lamps. Oh, there's always some plonker park right across it, and everybody stops. And we just wait now for this buffoon to get a move on. Everybody in all it's directions. Improving traffic flow and, improving and measures traffic like flow. That. Now, we did liaise. Uh, I asked Marvin this a year or so ago. Oh, it's the police responsibility. I asked the police. No, it's the council's responsibility. Well, in actual fact, it is the police responsibility, but you speak to the PCC and she will tell you that they don't have the resources. So somewhere along the line, then, it needs to become a council responsibility. We do now have a company that is uh, expert in enforcement. I think perhaps we should look at um, tasking them to take this t- um, on. We, with the, the uh, Metro bus, we've got more cameras about the city anyway. We know a lot more about what is happening around our city and we should be able then to perhaps police specific junctions. Are you coming through Temple Meads and heading up towards the city centre, up through Victoria Street, Baldwin Street, or what have you? Those junctions there, many of them uh, become bottlenecks after some inconsiderate motorist just pulls across. I can't go any further, so, you know, you can all wait as well. And I watched it, I watched it this when I came here today. A vehicle went right across the junction at Bristol Bridge. No one goes anywhere. And, uh, you know, it was a big bus. It wasn't a Bristol bus, I will hasten to add. 
Um, he just thought, oh, well, you know, I'll go across um, because I don't know where I'm going. And that's it. The whole of Bristol Bridge came to a halt. Now, we should say to listeners that clean air zones and whatever potential charging mechanism comes in through them, that's different to a congestion zone because clean yes. air zones is to do with emissions and the the kind of the state of your vehicle. But a congestion charge is something which I know your group leader, Mark Weston, is concerned about. In yes. fact, last night at the cabinet meeting, he he brought this issue up and he said that he was concerned at the term demand management, which yes. is being used in some of the transport literature around at the moment. Now, what would you say to, if I pitch this to you, do you think that this is um, perhaps an ambition of the council to bring in a non-charging clean air zone but then actually bring in a congestion zone, which would be a blanket charge for all vehicles regardless and therefore making much more money. I think the point Mark was trying to make, and I'm sure Paul would support him in it, is the much that if you do impose any charge at all, the poorer, the less well-paid working class are the ones who it will affect the most. Um, so that is one of the reasons we would be against that policy Yes, I think what you, the, 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 the scenario you have just put forward there holds water, that there would be a small charge, whatever zone you choose, whether you have the small central zone, the slightly larger middle zone, let's call it. It certainly isn't, isn't going to be citywide, although that could, I suppose, be an option. But the problem with particulate uh, pollution is that it doesn't happen only on the city centre. It happens in Brislington. It happens in Avonmouth for sure. Um, we don't have the big areas of industry that Bristol used to have pre-war. But if you've just driven down the M4 and you get anywhere near Port Albert, you can smell it in the air. You can smell the sulphur. You can smell the pollution. You can chew the air nearly down there. And luckily, we don't have that problem up here. But we, we are still well out of it's, legal limits. Yeah. And mm. it is affecting greatly the health of our citizens mm. well I mean, it causes respiratory issues and we're talking in particular here about nitrogen dioxide and it's been linked to as a contributing factor to up to 300 deaths in the city a year I, well I, I don't have that particular figure but I would accept that that's possibly very true mm. I was reading in the paper one of the papers sometime today I only read three um, about a young girl who died from an asthma attack and they believe was brought on by NO2. And I'm thinking, that is dreadful. Okay, so there are some people who are particularly susceptible to asthma, pollutants that, that cause asthma. Um, so we really got to get on top of this somehow or other. I would like to be involved more um, with the air quality group at Bristol because not so much I have great things to contribute but uh, I would like to be there to sort of see how it is developing. We aren't looking years in the future. Bristol is looking very short term to, to get something up and running so that it can be imposed or uh, implemented, bigger pardon, you know, in the new year. Yes, yes. So I think it's coming back to Cabinet in October, Yes. the potentials which we could be seeing. And the plan has to be drawn up and sent back to government Absolutely. by the end of the year with... Yeah the aim of getting it actually implemented in 2022. Um, well, to me, that's far too long. How, 300, pound, uh, 300, pound, 300 people a year 
Um, I guess the council would argue that it needs time to put in the infrastructure needed to be able to yes, to bring I'm, this. I'm, obviously, I to mean, fruition. I'm getting on my eye horse at the moment. But, <laughs> Paul, um, can I come to you? What, what's your take on on the clean air zone and the potential which Bristol could see? Well, I, I represent the city centre mm-hmm, uh, of, of Bristol. The worst and, ward, and for... it's the best ward in the <laughs> well, city, not for but, air pollution. But in terms of in terms of air pollution, you know, we we you know we know that there are people dying prematurely within who live within my ward because of this air pollution, and others who are suffering from ill health because of it. So we have to act, and it is more difficult in Bristol because it is a bowl. The centre of Bristol mm. is a bowl, so there is quite often the 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 pollution can be trapped within the within the centre of the of the city. Uh, it's my colleague, uh, both my ward colleague as well as my cabinet colleague, Kai Dudd, who is leading on this work at, and on the on the consultation. And, you know, the one thing that's very clear is that we can't, that an option of doing nothing is not available to us. So as I think it's already been explored. We're looking at different, uh, two different potential zones when you say an option of doing nothing, do you mean an option of just ignoring it yes, or non-charging? An, yes, an, an option of just of leaving things it, as yeah. they are now is not actually a realistic option. So there's a, there's a consultation uh, going on. Um, our concern reflects something that Tony said: is that we don't we don't want to be in a position where um, the ability to to pollute an area and and to end up undermining people's health is something that is a privilege of the rich mm. or the or the or the wealthy that, that it's okay for them to go and pollute people but you know that we basically price poorer people uh, out of doing it so there's a real issue about uh, the extent to which it might be it might be any scheme might be extended to people who are car owners as opposed to those who've got vans um or you know, trucks that are coming into the city. I think that we also have to look at, are there things that we can do which reduce the number of lorries coming in? We also need to make sure that the buses, which are supposed to be there to improve the environment, to reduce the number of cars coming into the city, aren't actually part of the problem. And if you go along Rupert Street... Uh, I think there you are chewing the air, uh, as, yes. as Tony yeah, said. It's certainly, yeah. it's certainly pretty hideous down there. And of course, and, with- and so, what measures can we take to actually help people the transition from polluting the vehicles to non-polluting vehicles? And that you know, there's particular work going on with the bus company. There's work going on with taxi drivers and others who have got diesel vehicles. You know, there's work around freight consolidation. Uh, as well to try and stop those larger vehicles coming into the city. But it seems that the, the effect of the court case is that there will need to be a charging regime of some kind for and, some vehicles. And Tony mentioned the fact that actually public transport has to be up to scratch. If you're asking people to to change their habits, mm-hmm. then the alternative has to be fit for purpose. And if, I, was, you know- I was lucky enough last week, I was at um, the largest housing conference that we have in the UK, in Manchester, Stop talking about it. In Manchester. I've got to get housing in there. No, I was in Manchester and, you know, the little toot toot of the um, of the light rail system that they've got there. Bristol's public transport system is wholly inadequate and doesn't give many people the option of not coming in uh, by car. You- and Metrobus isn't going to solve that, not on its own. And it's why, 
you know, we, the mayor has been talking about, you know, mass transit options for Bristol is often, you know, immediately people start talking about an underground. I mean, most of it would not be underground, but we do need to have a much better, better use of the transport infrastructure. I was a student in Newcastle in the 1980s um, and there we could use the metro system, which used the old rail system. So there's also an issue about how do we open up more of the train stations, including the one in St Anne's, Mm. uh, where where Tony's the councillor. Um, But there's also one in Ashley Down. We've also created space in housing development Ashton to put one to service Ashton if we can get the Porter's headline open, which we we need to do. Um, We need to use all of the infrastructure that's available to us to have a real step change in the public transport options that are available to people. And we need that to be affordable as well. And the scenario I put to Tony, whereby Bristol could see a non-charging clean air zone, but actually bring in a congestion charge, which would affect every single vehicle. Do you think that's a realistic prospect? I don't think it's something we're looking at at the moment. For, again, for the for the reasons that have been said, what that, that tends to do is discriminate against poorer people it's a and say, tax, and it says it's 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 a type of poll tax, mm. and it says it's okay if you can afford it, um, and therefore if you're wealthier to to do as much pollution and cause as much congestion as you like. So there's always a, di- a dilemma in in these approaches, and what we find is because on a lot of our outer estates where there are actually a lot of people on low incomes the public transport infrastructure is quite poor that people are forced to buy cars. They can't really afford to own cars, but the cars they own are quite old because it's the only type of car they can afford to buy and they're therefore more polluting. So whatever system we come up with has to take that into account. Mm. Well, we found that with the, I'm going to call it the slum clearance programmes of the 50s and 60s. They built these lovely green villages North, south, south, east, and west. <laughs> Moved everyone out there to these wonderful new homes. Unfortunately, employment was still in the centre of the city, and there weren't the buses at all. So that's why I think Bristol has, over the decades, been famous for the fact focused. that it's it, it, you know more people, more percentage of people own cars in Bristol than any other city apart from London itself. Um, because we and we've grown up with that, and because we've grown up with that. It means that perhaps the bus companies, and we spoke briefly about the development of how First Now is a very wealthy company on the back of Marlborough Street bus station, why these companies really can't get to grips because they can't get quite the passenger numbers to actually just tip them over from being just and just making some money to actually making some good money, which would then allow them and the confidence in these companies to really start ploughing serious money into Bristol's public transport network well, which also comes back to, to housing again in yeah. that a lot of the housing that we built in those periods was was too low density and therefore we didn't have a concentration of population to make our the, the public transport systems stack up and therefore you know when we're looking at housing developments now we we are looking at how those relate to a public transport infrastructure and how we ensure that they can help drive the use. So, you know, I know it's quite close to the centre, but the you know there's been a lot of talk about the Malago Green development. Part of that is about enhancing the station at Bedminster 
and therefore then enhancing the the train service there is not just about people getting into the centre of Bristol because most most people there will be able to walk or cycle in, but also gives them transport access from where they live to Temple Meads and then from Temple Meads to other places they want to go in the country. Um, And Bristol has been poorly planned over many years. I should just say, um, first, I think it was last week or the week before, came back and did say that passenger numbers in Bristol had increased and it was bucking the trend in terms of more people are using public transport rather than a decline, just a little fairness there for Uh, Yes, but I... I mean, if you look at the, the buses, should be busy all day, every day. Uh, in my humble way of thinking, yes, they, they they can be sometimes because there aren't enough of them running. We have this joke in Brissington about the thirty-six bus route. You know, we get people dying of starvation and thirst while they're sat waiting for it. Grey-haired, long-bearded men were clean-shaven when they started waiting for them. You know, <laughs> things like that. I mean, the, the, the thirty-six, I think, on weekend now runs once an hour. Well, what use is that to the people of St Anne's Park? And um, and the the surrounding areas absolutely none whatsoever. If they have to be into Bristol early in the morning, and you live on the new, we'll call it the Boardmills Estate, it's St Anne's Park Estate. There, you nearly got to walk, and you're still required to you know basically have a car. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm lucky. I got my health, and I've got a, a, a bike, an electric bike at that. You know, so I can afford to go in and out of town quite quickly, but. You don't have your health. You have to get into and out of town. You don't have an option, really, at the moment in s- modern areas. I mean, it's not St Anne's Park. The, the Boardmills Estate is a modern estate. Um, it's got no shops. It's got no bus. Well, it has got some shops, but certainly not the sort of shops that perhaps the folks would specifically want. There's no corner shops down there. So, yeah, I mean, perhaps it all goes back. We can always, with hindsight, pick out the fault of a system, the hard part is polishing up the crystal ball and looking into the future. Mm. Now, very quickly, we'll go on to our last topic, which <laughs> is, or which was Tuesday's cabinet meeting. A couple of interesting things came out of that. We were initially expecting an arena location announcement. That's been p- postponed. We've well documented that. Another big thing which came out last night is, of course, Banksy's offer to help save the library service and in some way... Perhaps not financial, maybe to do with, you know, highlighting the issue. We're not quite sure. But a key moment really came when Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees was speaking with the chair of scrutiny, Jeff Gollop, who is also conservative. And he was, I don't want to say attacking, that is maybe a bit hard, but he was scrutinising the scrutiny process and, and essentially saying that it kind of it wasn't up to scratch. Now, Paul, you were at the meeting. How did you feel that exchange went? Was was Marvin justified in his line of questioning? I I think Marvin raised some interesting issues in there about the extent to which when scrutiny invites people in, I mean, a bit like select committees do, for a short period of time to ask them some questions, um, that they're not necessarily getting the documentary evidence to back that up. So somebody can come in, you know, particularly when we're talking about outside people, they can come into a scrutiny commission and maybe to to make life easier for themselves or to get themselves off off the hook, they can make assertions without necessarily having to back that up with documentary evidence. And it it seemed to me that that Marvin's concern was that scrutiny were taking Um, issues on face value rather than scrutinising the document 
the documentary evidence. Now, scrutiny, to be fair to scrutiny, and I think I don't really want to talk about the arena, but I'm quite happy to talk about the scrutiny system. The scrutiny system across the country, which replaced, in a, fen- in a sense, the old committee system that I grew up with um, in the 90s, has never really been properly resourced. If you talk to most local authorities, they have trouble making scrutiny work because uh, it tends to be a you know a bit like an audit process that it comes onto the battlefield after the battle and bayonets the wounded uh, rather than being in a position of actually planning the battle in the first place. And so yeah. it's very, I think it's very difficult for scrutiny to find its role within local government. I don't think we've, we've I mean, it's quite a young system. It's only been going for since about 2000. So it's a system that needs to find its feet. I, I think that the, you know, the, the people on, on scrutiny looking at the arena project did the best they could in the time that was available, particularly given that they had quite a short period of time to act. Now, whether they need some follow-ups where they look for the people who gave evidence to give documentary proof of the points that were being made, I think is 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 an, is another factor. I wouldn't criticise scrutiny members for working in what is a very under-resourced system trying to get to the bottom of something. They were looking at reports produced by uh, KPMG and in those reports there were quite a lot of unknowns and, and guesswork relating to some of what was what was being proposed. Also, it did appear that KPMG hadn't, to, hadn't talked to all the parties that were in, I don't mean political parties, I mean the players in the in the arena process, so maybe they had to do their report to quite a tight time scale. Scrutiny did theirs to quite a time t- tight time scale. That some things fell through the cracks. So I mean, I've never had to sit on a scrutiny committee, um, and I admire the work that 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 scrutiny does in trying to make sense of what we're doing. I think fundamentally, the answer to the sort of issues Marvin was raising is putting more resource and support into scrutiny, maybe giving it a bit more teeth mm. uh, than it than it's got at the moment. Do you think it was appropriate for him, though, to be asking those questions in such a public place to Jeff, who was there to represent a report? I think, I mean, I you know, Jeff and Marvin are both, are both grown-ups. In some respects, you say that rather than doing deals behind closed doors or whatever, it, it makes sense to have those discussions in, in public. Mm. I don't know how much notice Jeff had that those those issues were going to be raised. I don't know. You'd have to ask Jeff or, Jeff or Marvin he that. He said a couple of hours. I've got a lot of respect uh, for Jeff. I think he does a very good job in, in his role of, of chairing overview and, scr- and scrutiny management. He's obviously an experienced uh, member of, of the council. And I think that he was able to... I think what he said was, you know, the, he could address some of the questions Marvin raised there. Others, he would need to give, you know, go back to the papers and give longer answers. In a sense, we do that as cabinet members. Sometimes people will ask a follow-up question to a table question and our answer is, we'll write to you afterwards. Mm. So I don't I don't think there's any difference really uh, in that process. And Tony, if I can come over to you, you weren't at the cabinet meeting nope. on Tuesday, but within the group, what's the what has the reaction been to the questions which were put towards Jeff by the mayor? I'm not sure at all. I have no idea what questions the mayor was asking. 
as far as but we were talking about Temple Meads Island. It was, it, it was into uh, a um, so obviously KPMG produced their yes, well, report, I, I and then did there was all the scrutiny the three, sessions. Um, scrutiny yes, sessions. So there was the three scrutiny sessions, and then and, yesterday um, it it seemed to me uh, the comparison of the two sites wasn't equal. There was more information readily available for Temple Island than there was for uh, the option. However, uh, I say I only attended the one mm. of the three meetings. And how do you think the scrutiny process played out in that meeting that you attended? Because one of Marvin's, fairly, one of Marvin's points was that scrutiny weren't asking the correct questions. I fear that, it, again, it's um, in Marvin's point of view, it wasn't. At the time, when you're at the coalface working, it was the, probably the, the, the right question. I remember watching um, Jeff looking across to his colleagues on the table and all the uh, uh, councillors who were sat on the benches there, any other questions? And he asked that again and again and again. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. as though he was putting his own thoughts in and he was stuck for question. He was inviting all the officers and councillors to put uh, questions to KPMG and to the other folks who were getting up to speak at various options. So I, I would the point Paul made there, yeah, I think as far as that element of scrutiny was concerned we, uh, as good a job could, was done as could be at the time it, it you can always have uh, this hindsight feature which is a magnificent beast we really ought to develop it or bottle it or something because somewhere along the line yes scrutiny needs to look for to start at the start line if we had had a scrutiny as we have now day one of when George decided we're going to have a, an arena. Blooming good idea, cracking idea, all for it. Unfortunately, somewhere along the line, no one said, well, let's start the scrutinising now, day one. Um, the information, the data we would have then would be immense. Mm-hmm. But we don't. We are still playing, as Paul suggested, catch-up. Too little, too late. And I think I think it, the scrutiny process is one that's evolving. I mm. think... There are things I, I sat in on one of the sessions uh, that, of, of scrutiny you behind, you for this, yeah. um, you know, just just to listen and see what was going on. And you know, it's an evolving process. I think some issues have been raised about the extent to which scrutiny has access to evidence. You know, talk about evidence early on, evidence rather than just testimony. Mm. Um, and and I think that's I think that's a good point. But I do think that then to do that, then need, scrutiny needs to be better resourced mm-hmm. um, because us as the executive uh, do have access to quite a lot of officer resource to do the things that we're doing, and obviously we are looking at quite a lot of background information. Um, you need as rigorous a process to be available for scrutiny, for scrutiny to be able to play a full functioning role. And as I said, I think this is a—I don't think this is a Bristol issue. I think it, it's a national issue. Sadly, we're we're coming to the close of the podcast. But if I can end on one final question for both of you, and I know Paul, you said you didn't want to talk about this, but Tony, where do you want to see the arena built? Temple Meads. Paul, um, I represent the centre of Bristol. And that's all you're saying? That's all I'm saying. Wonderful. Enough said. Well, I'm just taking the conservative line on that one. We think <laughs> the, Whoa, gr- the group generally want to see it at Temple Meads. And um, we shall protest. I shall lie down in front of the bulldozers <laughs> that go anywhere else. That's on tape. That's on record. <laughs> see, we, I knew we'd get him back in the ditch at some point. <laughs> Thank you both for joining
That was the last episode in this series of Nevermind the Ballot, but don't worry because we'll be back again in the autumn. And just because we're not putting out new podcasts, you can still listen to the old ones. Remember, you can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. You can follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast. And for now, goodbye. <laughs>